This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to the Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Jane Forsyth and the journalist John Litchfield, who's written a fantastic article about what exactly is happening in the channel. John, to start with, can you explain what exactly is happening? Are the French declaring another war over mussels? Uh, not of mussels. Scallops, whelks, sole and place, I think, probably, more likely. Yes, from Tuesday, the French are saying that unless the British give way on this dispute about fishing licences for boats in very close in inshore waters, that they will do two or three things. One, stop British, mostly Channel Island boats, from landing their fish catches in French ports, which is a big issue for them. But mostly, I think the biggest issue is that they're going to start playing around essentially and, and enforcing the regulations as vigorously as they can and as any of the French know how to on trucks arriving from Britain to the continent, which as we knew at Christmas could cause a real backup of trucks on the Folkestone end or the Dover end and cause real problems for British trade to the continent, which is already suffering post-Brexit. So I think that is the greater threat at the moment. There's a further threat longer down the road if it isn't solved of maybe messing around with electricity supplies to mostly to the Channel Islands, which get 95% of their electricity from France, but also to Britain, which gets something like 7% of its electricity from France. But frankly, I don't think that is going to be a very serious threat. They've withdrawn the rather foolish threat that they made earlier this year to cut off the electricity to the Channel Islands. That isn't going to happen. James, it all seems quite trivial to people who are not fishermen, I guess. But why is this important and why is it happening? Is it just overblown? I think this is the political dynamic that has emerged between Britain and France post-Brexit. The French view has long been that Brexit must be shown to have consequences of the negative rather than the positive variety and also that you know you should be tough on the UK it is always long been France calling for the toughest line on the UK in the Brexit negotiations and post-Brexit you see that and also on issues such as the Northern Ireland protocol that it is the French who are you know the toughest people in the room in terms of the position and I think what you see going on here is you've got elections coming up in France next year And a French view that essentially the the UK-EU free trade agreement fudged this question of French boats fishing off the channel line and saying that if they could provide evidence that they had done so historically, they would be allowed to carry on doing so. There is now almost inevitably a dispute over how, you know, what the burden of proof should be to show that you've done that or not. And the French are kind of pushing for the, the UK to back down and grant these remaining licenses. I think John is right, though, that if you get to a situation where early next week the French at a time when supply chains are already under pressure decide to kind of to, to start squeezing, I think that the UK government won't back down. And what you'll see is that both sides will simply escalate and escalate the rhetoric. And the two major military powers in Western Europe, at a time when Russia feels emboldened by rising energy prices, 
are going to be falling out over the fishing rights involving about you know a few dozen vessels. I mean, it is, it is remarkable, but I think we are probably heading to an escalation. Well, let's talk a bit more about the geopolitics in a bit. But first, John, James mentions that France wants the UK to suffer, but, you know, we've got this history here. But you write in your piece that also there are quite a number of these licences that we haven't given to French boats because they haven't been able to prove that they were historically there. So do you think on the British side there's also been kind of this stickler for the rules attitude that hasn't helped things? Absolutely, I think there has. I think the bad faith is mostly on the British side, quite frankly. I've got in front of me the text of the agreement that was made on December 24th, was it? Which, you know, was a hurry, as a rush, as we know. And, I mean, what we're talking about here is a very small number of boats, because we're talking about not the whole of the EU access to British waters, which was agreed at the last minute, but just whether or not certain boats which had historical rights to do so could also fish between 6 and 12 miles, whereas most boats were only allowed up to 12 miles from the British coast. So along the English coast, but also around the Channel Islands, there was an agreement that there should be fishing between 6 and 12 miles, which also applied to British boats that wanted to fish close to the French coast in certain places. Now, what it doesn't say in the agreement I have, it says that qualifying vessels are those which have, in four of the years between 2012 and 2016, fished in the zone mentioned. It's actually slightly different rules for the Channel Islands, but even easier, actually, of access. But it doesn't actually say how you define which boats have fished in those years, in previous years. It's left very vague. The agreement itself is very badly framed. It was done at the last minute. The French view all along was that everyone knows which boats fish there. We, everyone knows roughly how many boats fish there. It should be very easy to decide which boats could continue to fish. The British have taken the view, and Jersey has taken the view, but Guernsey hasn't, interestingly, that this should be uh, very, very clearly defined and only the boats can absolutely prove that they fished in those waters in that time can have licences. Now, the smaller boats don't have the satellite gear, which you can easily then trace where they fished in previous years. They may have not been keeping their records. There may be some French skippers who are now trying it on and wanting to fish where they haven't fished there before. But really, this is a dispute over nothing. You know, everyone knows that these boats have fished there. It has been agreed that they should continue to fish there. If it was left to the fishermen themselves, it could be solved very quickly. They know whether Jean-Jacques fished there before or Louis didn't fish there. It could easily be done. So the pernicketiness, the, the rigorous, the rigidity of the application of this very vague agreement has come from the British side. So I think James is wrong there to suggest that this is an argument of France's making wanting to stick it to the British. Certainly the politics on the French side is an issue and it would be very difficult now for the French government to back down. I don't think that there are many votes in fishing in France any more than there are in Britain. But if, if France is seen to be defeated in some way by Britain on this issue, that is a problem for Macron in, in the elections next year. So I think the, the problem is one of Britain's creation, but now it has become one politically very difficult for France to let go of. To that extent, yes, the politics of the election next year is an issue. James, what do you think? And also, isn't it a bit ironic that this pernicketiness is what we are accusing the EU of on the Northern Ireland Protocol? So, I think two things. I think, first of all, the UK's position on the Northern Ireland Protocol undoubtedly makes it harder for the UK to find allies in the rest of Europe in, in kind of pushing back against the, I think, quite 
extreme language that the French have, have used and some of the threats they've made, which, which you know, when you talk about kind of cutting off energy supplies and the like, that, that is rather OTT. But I think the problem is that because of the protocol and the UK's attempt to essentially renegotiate an agreement that it signed so recently, that the UK can't call on the normal cooler heads that you would. Now, mm. I think Emmanuel Macron does have a slight tendency to fall out with other countries around the world. This is not, you know, he has got into a fair few arguments. I also think you can't ignore the fact that the French remain very, very cross about the AUKUS Mm. submarine deal, which cost the French a very big contract with Australia. We know that, again, EU-Australia trade talks have again been postponed, essentially because the French said no. And I think one of the reasons why, I think, in the longer term, this dispute is going to get worse, is the French take on the EU presidency in January at a time when I think all the tensions over the Northern Ireland Protocol will, will be far higher than they are now, and in the run-up to a French election. And I think the combination of both Johnson and Macron's personalities and that situation could easily lead to this properly escalating as a situation. Mm. John, would you agree with that, that it's going to drag on and on? I agree with a lot of what James has just said. I, you know, We disagree about the origins of the dispute, and this is going on long before the AUKUS submarine row so it's not caused by that in, in that sense you may remember there was a, a set to in may wasn't there i think when the french boats from normandy and Brittany blockaded a harbor in jersey so this is an older dispute it, i think it has to be seen as james has said in the context of the AUKUS submarine the breach of the french contract and the, the french blame the british and the americans for having for having done that and not even consulted them about it it's also in the context, I think, of a lot of other rows. You know, we hear a lot about the British complaining about the French not stopping small boats getting across the channel. With migrants, the French point out that the British agreed to pay money to enforce, to help the French enforce those, to stop that happening and have more gendarmerie and police activity along the French coast. That money has never been handed over. So there are a lot of individually, perhaps trivial, perhaps the AUKUS one isn't so trivial, disputes between the two countries. I think Macron does take a very negative view of Brexit. I think that's true. I think he also is someone who's instinctively rather pro-Anglo-Saxon in, in his political outlook. I don't think it's right to think of Macron, who's someone who is anti-British in his fundamental instincts. It's also true, I think, that Brexit is not an issue in the French presidential campaign directly, but anything that made Brexit seem in a way successful obviously could be an issue in that campaign. There are people who are, who are sovereigntist or sort of Eurosceptic in their views that Macron wants to argue against. At the moment, Britain is doing quite a good case of making Macron's argument that Brexit was the wrong way to go and would be even more disastrous if France ever went for a Frexit. But yes, I think those issues do, do affect the outcome of this dispute. And I think that the longer it goes on, it's going to be harder for either side to back down. Once the French get involved in causing problems for British trucks getting across the channel, it's going to be very difficult for them to stop doing that without Macron being accused of being weak by his political rivals, unless the British back down on these licences. I think it would be equally difficult for the British to give way under what seems like duress from the French side. So, I mean, I agree with James basically about that frame of the issue. It's a very dangerous situation out of what is a very finely, very small and silly dispute, except for the small number of French fishermen whose livelihoods are threatened. James, what options are open to the British side? Obviously, this week, the French ambassador has been summoned in for a discussion. But short of giving these boats licences, can the British do anything in return to these threats from the French side? I think the reality 
is that however much people say, oh, the UK should go for tit-for-tat measures, all this stuff, I think ultimately the UK interest should be in de-escalating the situation. And I think that, that probably, this is one of these ironic post-Brexit facts, that probably the British friends in this are the commission. You know, try and get this referred you know, into the dispute panel, take some of the political heat out of it, Right. work out a way of working this out. You know, John was talking about the number of licences that have been refused. I think more have been granted relatively recently. I think there's a kind of question. And I think turning this into processology and trying to reduce as much politics as possible is a problem. Because there is no doubt that if you got into a situation, you know, the UK is still not conducting checks on EU goods coming into the country because its priority is to keep trade flowing. That is the choice the UK government has made. And I think at at a moment when supply chains are already under quite a bit of strain from kind of, you know, the post-COVID moment, you know, having the French take a very hardline view and not prioritising flow, that I think would would cause the UK problems. I I I think there is a broader issue at stake here, which is I think that the French and the UK have very different views of how you should respond to the kind of US pivot to Asia. The fact that over time, Europe is going to have to take more responsibility for its own security. I think the UK instinct is very much, and you can see this, you look, at, look at this argument about NATO. The UK wants to get NATO much more involved in Asia, much more specifically involved in the Chinese issue. That's a position shared by the Danes, the Baltic states, the French view this as a moment for European strategic autonomy, you know, but to lessen the European reliance on the US and for kind of less deference to the US. And I think this tension between the UK and France about how to deal with this, you know, in a way you can talk about all the, the current situation as, as part of a kind of result of a kind of combination of a cocktail of personalities of Macron, Clement Bone, Boris Johnson and David Frost. But I think this strategic difference is going to be there long after all those four have left the scene. Mm. And John, I'd like to get your thoughts on the geopolitics of the whole thing as well. You know, that it's not just about Brexit. What, what does it say about Anglo-French relations and indeed France's place in the West as it tries to tackle a rising China? It's interesting, you know, uh, that was, I think, more directly concerned in the in the AUKUS submarine and the Australia-France strategic agreement that that, that torpedoed is more directly relevant than the fishing off Jersey and Guernsey or the English coast, obviously. But as we were saying before, all these things are connected. I think James is right that the French do take a slightly different view of that, but you you have to remember, which people in Britain don't, people in France sometimes don't, that France is a Pacific country, you know. Neighbours of Australia to the east and west are France, in terms of very small islands, yes, but, you know, France feels it has, has a stake in the Pacific, which maybe it doesn't feel Britain has, you know, and therefore it takes a kind of almost a domestic view of Indo-Pacific affairs. And that is, was largely the background of the huge French anger about the, the submarine dispute. I think the fact that the France's legitimate reasons for f- feeling it had a, a stake in Pacific relations and therefore Chinese rest of the world relations were ignored, deliberately ignored, it thought, by the Americans and the British. That is in the background. I'm not sure that this dispute is kind of affected by that directly, you know. I mean, I think this dispute could be very, very solved very easily. I don't think the French want to have this dispute drag on necessarily. 
I think after Brexit, my view, and it turned out to be completely wrong, was that French-British relations would return to something really quite normal quite quickly because just that we are neighbours, you know, we have to get on. We're, we're obliged to get on in the end. And we are, as, as James said, the two big defensive powers in Europe. We cooperate enormous with enormous uh, success and in great detail in, in our military engagements in various parts of the world, including in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So there are many reasons why Britain and France, who I've often compared like two sisters who live next door to one another and who are sort of partly friends and partly constantly quarrelling and looking over the garden fence and watching what the other is doing. There are many more reasons why we should get on than we should not get on. John Litchfield and James, thanks very much for joining Coffee House Shots. <laughs>